This morning we want to go to uh, two places. Well, you just go to one, I'll go to the other. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Then I'm going to read a verse in Galatians chapter 5. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 18. <laughs> Whenever Phanaya gets settled. <laughs> Pick a chair, any chair. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then just one verse in Galatians 5 verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Then the offense of the cross has ceased. It would seem that today that many things offend many people. Governments all over the world have legislated for any on every kind of offense, real or even perceived. For example, if you live in the Muslim world, you better not say or do anything that could possibly be construed or perceived as an offense against Allah or his prophet Muhammad. To say to a devout Muslim that God has a son may actually offend him. To say to a Jew that Jesus is your Messiah could be an offense to a devout Jew. If we live in the Western world, which we do, uh, then we better not say or do anything that may offend or be perceived to be an offense to homosexuals, to lesbians, to transsexuals, or anybody who has any kind of alternative lifestyle. If you do, then hate speech crime could be invoked and you could find yourself actually in trouble with the law. And so judging by the attacks upon it and the way it's perceived, you could say that Christianity in particular is the most offensive religion in the world. Now forget for a moment the Muslim world, the Hindu world, the Buddhist world, the communist world, uh, where Christians seem to offend regularly. Forget all of that. 
Just think for one moment of the Western world, of Great Britain, of Europe, of North America. Again, governments are legislating, making laws, enacting laws uh, that would strip away all of our Judeo-Christian ethic that has been the bedrock for the Western world society for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, even in the workplace, uh, it's getting very difficult to express, if you're a Christian, to express your deeply held biblical beliefs and worldview. Because if you do, somebody's going to get offended and perhaps complain uh, to the company and you may find yourself out of a job pretty quickly or even more, you may find yourself before a court. That's how bad things are. And so it seems to be that free speech is actually no longer safe when it comes to Christians particularly expressing their beliefs. Somebody may be offended. <clears throat> However, offending Christians uh, seems to be absolutely permitted. Maybe that's because most Christians will not complain. And so we have become the butt of TV comedians' jokes. You rarely ever hear them saying a joke about Allah or Muhammad, but always about Christians and Christ. Movie makers and directors uh, make us parodies. Uh, fanatics, academics, and so-called new atheists daily ridicule us uh, and treat us as delusional and embassies and idiots for believing the Bible. Prime ministers and presidents alike, they pay lip service to Christianity, but then they enact laws that uh, seem to be destroy everything that is Christian or that we hold dear. And so is this a new phenomenon? Should we be even surprised at this? No. It's always been that way. Paul said to the Galatians that the cross was an offense. He said to the Corinthians that it was a stumbling block, that it was foolishness. So whenever you boil it all down, when you get to the nub of Christianity, it's the cross that offends people because the cross is at the very center of Christianity. It's at the very center of the gospel message. But it is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Take away the cross out of the gospel and the gospel is powerless. It will not change any life. And so when you get right down to the hub of it, it's the cross that offends. Of course, today, a cross is often no more than just a fashion accessory. It can be worn by a man or a woman with the vilest lifestyle without any thought of what a cross actually stands for. Of course, when the Apostle Paul went about the Roman world in his day, everybody knew what a cross stood for. And the very thought of a physical, material cross, the very thought of that would make anyone shudder in those days. All of them had seen with their eyes or heard with their ears the, the terrible awfulness, the wickedness 
of the cross. Nothing in their minds could be more gruesome and more awful than the death of someone on a cross. So whenever the apostle Paul went about preaching about the cross, boasting of the cross, glorying in the cross, it was a shocker to them because they could visualize a cross. They could visualize a man on a cross. And after 2,000 years, we're removed from that. But in those days, it was a shock. What kind of a religion boasts about a gallows or an electric chair or a guillotine? What kind of a religion boasts about such an instrument of death? What kind of a savior is it that would die upon a Roman cross? And to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. It was an offense. It offended them right to the very core of their being. And of course, they believed in blood sacrifice, but that was for bulls, it was for goats, it was for calves, it was for sheep, but it was not for a Messiah. It was not for their Messiah. And so they would be greatly offended and they would stumble at the preaching of the cross. The Greeks were offended too, Paul said. It made no sense whatsoever to their philosophical minds. Uh, they looked at themselves as a cultured people, as free thinkers. And for a Greek to think the death of a Jew upon a Roman cross could save them, Greeks, that was foolishness. Foolishness. Is it any different today? Not really. You see, for the religious man or woman, Jesus dying a horrible, painful, bloody death on a cross 2,000 years ago is not what saves us today to the religious person. It's our good works. That's what saves us. It's our decency. It's our Good lifestyle, that's what saves us. Not a man down on a cross 2,000 years ago. Steve Chalk, who's a Baptist pastor in England, by the way, Baptists in England are very different than Baptists here. There's not one Baptist I would ever know here would believe this. But in 2003, he published a book called The Lost Message of Jesus. And in that book, he's describing John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here's what he said. How then have we come to believe that at the cross, this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. So if we believe that God put his son on a cross, then we believe that God is a child abuser. That's the implication, what he's saying. The fact is the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, he says, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. That's someone who professes to be an evangelical born-again Christian. Polly Townby, who's a 
columnist in the Guardian newspaper, who's the president of the British Humanist Society. In 2005, she said in a review of the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she put an article, and she entitled it, Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. She says, of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Then she asked the question, did we ask him to? Now that was in 2005. You'd think that in 2013, for her to say that, surely somebody could claim that's a hate speech offense. But nobody will do that, even if she wrote that today. So here's Paul's answer to all of that. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? In Romans 5, 8 and 9, he writes, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. How? Steve Chuck says, because he's of God of love, he wouldn't put his son on a cross to die for our sins. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's some statement, isn't it? God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross, the instrument of death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see why then particularly that was such a shocking statement to make. But it's shocking today also. Winston Churchill said of Clement Athlee, he says, Mr. Athlee is a very modest man, but then he has much to be modest about. <laughs> the Apostle Paul had much to boast about. Intellectually, he was brilliant. He was an academic. He had a forensic mind. This is a man who was not only a great theologian, but he was an avid reader of poets and philosophers. This is the man who could verse with anybody on any subject. He had such a brilliant mind. Religiously, he was a Pharisee. He said, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a relative of Hillel, who was the greatest rabbi ever in history. And Paul sat at his grandson's feet. Religiously, he was a rabbi himself. He was a Pharisee. He observed all the law's commands and all the Pharisees' demands. He was a religious zealot. Hmm. Morally, he was an upright 
and virtuous man. Nationalistically, he could boast of being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. His mother and father were Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he had a true blue Hebrew pedigree. Yet, in spite of that, he held Roman citizenship. Now, that was something that was greatly prized in the world at that time. To have Roman citizenship gave you many, many rights. And one of the greatest rights was to be able to appeal right up to Caesar, the highest court in the world at that time. And because you were a Roman citizen, you could never be crucified. He held Roman citizenship. And, and more than once he appealed to his Roman citizenship, did he not? When you read through the Scriptures. He came from the city of Tarsus, a great Greek coastal city. According to Smith's Bible Dictionary, it was a, renowned as a place of higher education, a, a place that was comparable to Athens or Alexandria. And so that's the type of this man. That's the, his inheritance that he had. That's where he came from. Spiritually, he was an absolute giant spiritually. Two-thirds of the New Testament is attributable to his pen. He was a prolific writer. He was a missionary evangelist par excellence. There was no one who did as much as he did. Take all of the work of all the apostles put together and it didn't measure up to what one man, the apostle Paul, did in his lifetime. Did he boast of that? No, he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. The only time actually he boasted, that was to the Corinthians, he says, this is foolish. You know, because he, he had left them for a while and he wanted to go back and they wanted, they wanted letters of recommendation about him. And he says, you want a letter of recommendation? He says, you're my letter. And then he told them a little bit about himself. He says, this is foolishness. I don't need to do this. So he could have boasted, but he really he didn't. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, 8, I am least of all the saints. 1 Timothy 1, I am chief of sinners. He was an extremely humble man. But God forbid that I should boast, and he had much to boast about, but God forbid, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all we can boast about too. Anything we have as believers is through the grace of God, isn't it? It's through the Christ of the cross. So why is the cross such an offense to man? Because it strikes at the very heart of our pride our pride that thinks that we are good enough. It strikes at the very heart of our self-confidence, the belief that we can do enough and be enough. Religion wants to do something. 
It wants to earn something. It wants to deserve something. But the more religious man does something and feels he has earned something, then he feels he deserves something. The religious man doesn't ever see himself as a sinner in need of a savior. Remember Jesus in Luke 18, he told about the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, in the temple together at the prayer time and how the Pharisee stood with his chest puffed out saying, I thank God I am not as other men are extortioners, adulterers. I'm not even as that tax collector over there. But the old tax collector, Jesus says he beat his breast and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, which one of those two do you think went home justified? I tell you, it was the sinner. But you see, the religious man doesn't see the need of a Savior. Religion says do. Calvary says done. And there's a big difference, isn't there? Done. Finished. Complete. Nothing to add to. A man one time asked the famous D.L. Moody, what must I do to be saved? But he said, I'm sorry, sir, you are too late. In fact, you're hundreds of years too late. The doing has already been done. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> when the doing's already done, you can't do any more than that. You can't. Christ has done the job for us. But he had just finished a large crusade in a city in America. He'd got onto a train. He was sitting at the carriage window. The train was moving off and a man came running up beside him. He had been to the crusade but hadn't got saved. He was under conviction. And he ran up inside Moody and he shouted at Moody. He says, how can I be saved? Moody shouted back, Isaiah 53 verse 6. Go in at the first all and come out at the last all. <laughs> the man was puzzled. Went back to his room and he found a Bible. He read Isaiah 53 and 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. And he looked at it and he says, that's me. I'm a sheep who has gone astray. And he accepted that, the truth of that. And then he read, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He says, the Lord did that for me. And he accepted the truth of that. And he got saved. He went in the first all, and he came out in the second all. And that's all that we have got to do. Going in that first all, recognize that all of us are sinners needing a Savior, and then come out in the second all realizing that the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Years ago, a German pastor who was known for his faith and boldness, he was sneered at by a speaker at a 
Nazi rally in Berlin. Speaker pointed him out in front of everybody. Pastor Schutes, he said, the speaker, you are a fool. Imagine believing in a crucified dead Jew. Pastor jumps to his feet. He said, yes, sir. I should indeed be a fool if I believed in a crucified dead Jew. But, sir, I believe in the living, risen Son of God. <laughs> what an answer. What a difference. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Why was God raised up? Because of our justification. Why did He have to be raised up? Because of our justification. The thing that proved that His blood shed on the cross was enough to satisfy the wrath of God was the fact that God raised him from the dead. It left no doubt whatsoever that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son for all of us that he raised him from the dead. That was the evidence. That was the proof. That was the turning point, even in the lives of the disciples, even in the lives of his own siblings who did not believe that He was the Son of God, that He was the Messiah. When did they believe? In the resurrection. It proved it all. When did Thomas believe? When he saw the prince in his hand. It wasn't a ghost. It was a man, the God-man. Paul writes in Romans 1 again, he introduces Christ this way. He says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so this is why we boast in the cross. This is why we preach the message of the cross, somehow or other, along the way, much preaching has left behind the cross. I remember years ago, somebody gave me a, a it was one of those tapes, it wasn't a CD, it was a tape, so it was a long time ago. And it was David Wilkerson, he went to be with the Lord, was it last year? And the title of his message, he was at this big Christian conference. It was full of pastors and preachers. The title of his message was The Christless Pentecost. And he started to preach. And within a couple of minutes, they were all clapping. And he stopped them. He says, you'll not be clapping in a minute or two. And they weren't. And he talked about Pentecost because he's a Pentecostal preacher. And he says, what happened to Christ? 
What happened to the crucified one? Why are you not preaching it? Why have you left that message behind? Are you embarrassed? Are you scared it might frighten people away? Are you scared that people may feel condemned if you preach that? And boy, he really, really tore into everybody that was there, including me who was listening to it. The Christless Pentecost. So let's never lose sight of the cross. Let's never lose sight of the crucified one. Because that where it began for us. And that's what will take us through to the glory. Our World Ministries is a ministry that obviously reaches into the Arab world, particularly to the Muslim world. Do you know that God is doing great work among the Muslims in the Middle East? They don't hear about it much in television. There's a Christian uh, television program that reaches in to the Middle East, specifically to the Middle East, specifically for Middle Easterners, particularly for Arabs and for Jews. And they are absolutely inundated with requests for Bibles, for notes. They can hardly keep up with it. There's a work going on in the Middle East that we hardly ever hear about. And you understand that many of these Muslim people, they don't hear the preaching of the cross. They believe that Jesus was a prophet. He's in the Quran. They believe that. But not that He's the Son of God. Not that He died upon a cross for their sins, for their, my sins. They don't hear that. But God is reaching them nonetheless. And sometimes He's reaching them before He ever gets somebody to share that message with them. He's got to get their attention. And oftentimes he comes in dreams and visions that wakes them up in the night. And they wonder, what could this mean? And our word ministries has put a testimony in their latest little magazine. They changed the name. They called this person Abdul. For obvious reasons, because He's in a Muslim country, and it could mean death for him. And he says, while he writes this story, while on the, on the Islamic pilgrimage, Abdul was interrupted by a recurring vision. He kept seeing a sign of the cross whenever he looked up in the sky. Everywhere he went, he saw this. And Imam suggested that Abdul was plagued by a Christian demon and needed spiritual cleansing. <laughs> I remember, do you remember Clifford, one time we were in the Ukraine with Pastor Alexander, and he decided, some of you was there, he decided to hold this special prayer meeting away out, and it was away out somewhere where there was a kind of a, some big idol or something, I don't know what it was, because I couldn't read the Russian. But he says it was a center now for black magic and witchcraft and all the rest. So let's go down there and let's pray and just, Move these demons on. <laughs> and while we were all praying, the there must have been 50 or 100 people there. While we were praying, the, the Russian Orthodox Church was just a feet length away from us. And so while we were praying, I looked over, and there was the priests that were out. And they were out with their censers, scaring off these demons. 
that we had, that we had been praying about. <laughs> That just made Alexander a morse. <laughs> he prayed harder and louder. And so this imam said that you're being plagued by a Christian demon needed spiritual cleansing. And after reading the Quran for several hours with no success, Abdul decided to stop pursuing the imam's advice. And on returning from Mecca, Abdul considered approaching a Christian leader for guidance. But his Muslim family strongly dissuaded him. They'd always been wary of interacting with traditional Christian community. Instead, they sent him to a psychiatrist who gave Abdul a clean bill of mental health. The specialist tried comforting Abdul with the suggestion that he would eventually forget about the vision. And frustrated by the lack of progress, Abdul finally sought a Coptic Christian priest. And his reply was calm but discerning. He said, have you thought about listening to God? He may be speaking to you. Take this Bible and ask God to reveal himself to you as you read his word. Abdul conceded. Where the other avenues had failed, he sheepishly took the Bible and started reading. And for the first time, he began to pray in a different way as instructed. Abdul asked God to speak to him directly. Wonderfully, the Lord began revealing himself through the pages of Scripture. Abdul's heart was filled with peace and wonder. But his mind remained full of questions. How can I get to know the God of Christianity personally? How do I respond to his call to follow him? In contacting our media team, Abdul found biblical answers to his searching. He clearly longed to follow Christ. So the team arranged a face-to-face meeting with a national believer. And the first get-together lasted four hours as they excitedly discussed the Scriptures and the Christian life. And after a few weeks of further spiritual encouragement and teaching on the cross, Abdul committed his life to the Lord. He has now been baptized and joined a thriving fellowship in his home country. Thanks be to God. It all started with the vision of the cross. After 2,000 years, the cross is still as potent and as powerful as it ever was. C.H. Spurgeon said, no matter what I preach, no matter what subject I'm on, I make a beeline for the cross. (laughs) I make a beeline for the cross. You can't go wrong when we talk about the cross. Sure you can't. You say, David, but this is Sunday morning. It's a church full of believers. I deliberately did that. Because if anybody needs reminded of the cross, it's us. Because we know that. And familiarity often breeds contempt. Say, David, I know that. Yes, but what effect does it have if you know it? Who are you telling about what you know? Hmm? The old black preacher, he said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. (laughs) And that's what we are today, aren't we? We're nobodies, but in Christ we're somebody. And we're telling about Christ who can save anybody. Let's pray. Just a little while ago, Clifford 
led us in the communion. He reminded us again of the cross, the price that was paid. And he read that beautiful scripture, and I'm just going to read this as we pray together in a moment. From Revelation 5, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Glory to God. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The Apostle Paul shook the whole Western, whole Eastern world with the gospel of Christ on the cross. The Roman Empire was split in two by the message of the cross. It's the only message that will save men's souls today. So let us never ever forget the cross of Christ. Lord Jesus, we stop and we give you thanks. We bless you that you went voluntarily to that awful death on the cross. We thank you that you prayed that great price. We thank you that you were obedient to the Father who sent you and you gave your life for us. And so we humbly say thank you, Lord. We deserved hell. We deserve to be lost for all eternity. We deserve punishment. But you gave us grace. You gave us mercy. And you gave us your life. So we thank you for the great exchange. You took our sins and our sorrows and you made them your very own. You bore the burden to Calvary and you suffered and you died alone. No wonder we sing, oh, how marvelous, how wonderful. We thank you, Lord, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection. And we bless you that you're coming back again soon to claim your own. So we humbly thank you today for shedding your precious blood, saving our eternal souls, giving us new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.